What's the latest status on the science on climate change? Which effects are irreversible? Which do we actually have the possibility to prevent? Today I talked to Dr. Deborah Roberts, one of the six co-chairs of the IPCC. In a world, for example, where you have heat domes across the West Coast, North America, you have massive floods in Germany, you have devastating wildfires at a continental scale in, in Australia, that there's no escaping, there's no out for any particular ecosystem or, or community. Everyone will be impacted by climate change. And so, quite frankly now, no one is safe. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Deborah Roberts. She's one of the six co-chairs of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, better known as the IPCC. The IPCC is the United Nations body for assessing the science on climate change. Dr. Robert was lead author on the IPCC's fifth assessment reports and has since 2015 been working on the sixth assessment report that was published just a few weeks ago. Dr. Roberts holds a PhD in urban biogeography. For the last three decades, she's worked as a civil servant and now heads the sustainability and resilience function of the South African city Durban. Internationally, Dr. Roberts has served as a member of the South African UNFCCC negotiation team. She also served as an advisor to the United Nations Secretary-General's 2019 Climate Summit. Among her accolades, she was included on the Climate 100, a list of the world's 100 most influential people in climate policy. Hello, Dr. Roberts. Hello. First of all, let me thank you so much for your important work. Uh, the IPCC provides us with essential information, uh, not only as policymakers like myself, but also I would argue as, as a citizen. I mean, all citizens on this planet uh, can benefit from this important work. So thank you so much for that. Now, let me let me ask you as, as a starting point, what in your opinion is the most important uh, conclusion from from the recent report, Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability? Well, thank you for, for that question. And certainly to me, the most important message that emerges from this, as you say, enormous volume of work you know, undertaken by our 270 authors across five years is a very clear wake-up call. It's, it's a reality check at a global scale. And, and the message is, is quite simple, that climate change has become a threat to us as, as the human species, certainly our well-being, but it's also threatening the health of the planet that we're very deeply dependent on. And we have a very time-limited opportunity to pull together global action 
if we're not going to miss this very narrow and closing window of opportunity to secure a better future. And so for me, that's an important message. It's, it's a strong call to action. It's about a tough present, but an even tougher future. And the need to work together if we're to improve um, the opportunities for not only our generation, but the next. You identify more than 130 key risks related to climate change, including biodiversity loss, wildfire risks, reducing food security, reducing water security, and so forth. Can you can you expand on those risks and and how they're interconnected? So, if you have a look at our report, it's structured around regional and sectoral chapters, and and if you look into those chapters, you'll see that a whole range of key risks are, are identified in those chapters. And in fact, if we pull those together from the regional stories we've curated in our regional chapters and the sectoral focus we have in our sectoral chapters, we have over 130 uh, key risks across the report. And these are really called out because these are the risks that could become severe uh, under conditions of, of climate hazards, exposure and, and vulnerability. So they're not the only risks but they are the ones that that could become severe. Now, it's it's obviously very difficult to work with 130 key risks. No policymaker would be able to, to manage that. And so what our authors have done is to pull those key risks together into clusters, and we refer to those as representative key risks. So they provide us with a way of understanding this very big list of, of key risks and, and looking, as you say, at, at the relationship between them. And those clusters really relate to risks in important ecosystems, such as low-lying coastal systems. And you'll see that our report has, for example, a particularly strong focus on cities by the sea. It calls out the systems of risks that we see in terrestrial and ocean ecosystems. Also importantly, calls out key infrastructure, our networks and our services, so a reflection on, on the risk in the built environment looks at living standards, human health, um, and obviously a very strong focus on important sectors like water security, food security, and increasingly, I suppose, in, in the world that we live in, peace and, and mobility. So the key risks are clustered together in, in that way. And I think you can see from that relationship, what we are looking at is a whole series of ecosystems that are interrelated, because obviously our lowland coastal systems are impacted by what happens on land, and indeed in the ocean. And similarly, our, our key physical infrastructure is impacted by, by the dynamics of, of those systems. And all of that underpins the kind of health and livelihoods and living standards we can expect. So in many ways, these representative key risks create a storyline that describes how we live in the world um, and relate to it and, and where that's at risk. Yes, and... and it's it's a frightening read to to be honest and and one thing that even though i've i've been following this closely for for a few decades now one thing that actually did surprise me a little bit was that even if we stay below 1.5 degrees in temperature increase um which is what we're aiming for with the paris agreement even even if that happens which is Some would argue quite unlikely, but nevertheless, that's what we are. That's what we're all fighting for. Even if we do that, then still, if we look at terrestrial uh, ecosystems, you conclude that uh, probably between three to fourteen percent of of the species assessed will likely face very high risk of extinction. 
that that's very frightening because surely that that was well, frightening in itself because they will then be lost as a species but that will then probably also uh, have effects on on the whole ecosystem that they are part of absolutely and and i think it goes back to my opening statement that this is a very hard hitting reality check and in fact i saw a a headline recently which describes our report as bringing a message of adapt or die and it's time to focus on survival um and i know one always wants to bring a hopeful message but i think one can only find hope if we are fully honest about the challenges that we face and certainly in terms of the figures that you are quoting our report does say that 3 to 14% of the species assessed and these are terrestrial ecosystems uh, specifically that the figures are quoted for um will likely face so animals animals living on land right will we'll face a very high risk of extinction but we have to remember that it is qualified by the number of species assessed and if you look at our report we've assessed tens of thousands of species globally but not all of them so this figure doesn't mean that 3 to 14% of all species will will go extinct but of those assessed by the the scientists to date and those number in the tens of thousands um are at very high risk of extinction and as with everything else in the report that situation worsens as global temperatures increase so uh you know we have 3 to 14% if we look at at 1.5 but by the time we get to 5 degrees of global warming that increases from 3 to about 48% so we can see the significant change that occurs as as temperatures get higher yes well that is uh, that is of course extremely concerning another thing that's really should mean a lot to to people is that you also put it quite bluntly that probably some of the consequences that we see are already irreversible so so even if we succeed in the future with our climate policies even if the political momentum all of a sudden appears and we we will make the drastic changes that we need globally to stay below 1.5 uh some of the changes will will be too late to 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 do something about can can you expand a little bit on that yes and again i think that's another important message you know i, I think for many years we've always thought that we could either mitigate or adapt our way out of of the climate change problem hmm. unfortunately we've pushed the planetary system to the point that some of those changes as you say are now irreversible we can't go back and i think that's an important realization is that there is no easy way out of of the predicament that we we now face um and certainly probably the the, the clearest example of something that's irreversible is if we see a species going extinct so we we lose a species to the world um and we cite two examples one of a toad and and one of a, a rodent like species that have already gone extinct um as as a result of climate change which means they've disappeared from the world but there are other elements um that are also becoming irreversible so if you think about the ecosystems across the world some of the most iconic are forests our coral reefs um where we have the loss of species that make up those habitats so when we get mass mortality or mass diebacks of of trees and coral they give structure to those ecosystems and when those key structuring elements disappear then we get irreversible shifts 
in some of those ecosystems. We've also seen this increased frequency and severity and duration of, of extreme events, things like wildfires and droughts, and we, we've seen those across the world. And those uh, impacts, those extreme impacts, can in fact have, have uh, irreversible impacts on, on the ecosystems they impact on. So not only are we losing species, but we're changing the very structure of the ecosystems within which um, the species are, are located and, and survive and, and thrive, and those changes are seen to be irreversible. We also know, and this is a, a constant message in, in the report, as global temperatures increase, the risk of more irreversible changes lurk on the horizon. And, and so we reflect on not only what has changed irreversibly now, such as species loss and structure of some key ecosystems, we reflect on the fact that there will be changes um, that are likely to be irreversible coming uh, in the future. And, and those are in sensitive uh, ecosystems. So coastal ecosystems, mountaintops, our tropical coral reefs. So again, as we cross 1.5, the risk of irreversible impacts in those ecosystems um, also begins to emerge. Quite often, I, I, I think and I fear that when discussing these things in my own country, for instance, or in, in Europe in general, and probably also in, in a country like uh, the US, that many people, even the ones that are quite concerned and that really wants to take action, they probably don't realize that this is also something that will affect them and their lives. My point there is that we focus a lot, with good reason, uh, on the poorest countries of, of the planet and, and of the global south because they will be they will be hit the hardest. And I'm obviously not arguing that we shouldn't be concerned about that, but my point is... Um, it's quite clear that we will also be affected in Northern Europe, for instance. Can you say a few words uh, about that? So if you live in in uh, New York in the US or in Copenhagen in, in Denmark, what kind of a world are we are we looking at if we if we don't uh, if we don't manage to keep the temperature increases uh, below 1.5? And and I mean that's a very interesting point. And in fact, I've just come off a. Uh, uh, a webinar just prior to this, where we were discussing this this very issue, and in fact, the the report sets up a very clear narrative. It, it creates a, a kind of new DNA uh, for for the climate response story, in that it indicates that the whole of humanity and the whole of the, the planetary and and associated natural systems are so intertwined that there's no escaping, there's no out for any particular ecosystem or, or community. Everyone will be impacted by climate change. And so what we have is a story about a whole of society um, approach, not only in terms of response, but in terms of impact. Quite frankly, now, no one is safe because of the level at which we are beginning to, to change the world. So those representative key risks are not only for the developing world, because Certainly, the developed world is as equally undermined as the developing world is if we no longer have access to clean air and clean water. All of our development paths are dependent on a reliable and stable planetary system. So, unfortunately, there is no escaping uh, the, the, the climate challenge. And, and if we're to tackle it successfully, um, and certainly that window of opportunity to do that is very narrow. But if we are to be able to act ambitiously and fast enough, 
it's going to require everyone pooling all of our resources uh, to, yeah. to be able to do that. So not only are we all impacted, but we're all going to have to do the heavy lifting that's required to move forward. And it's an important point because, um, I mean, there probably are examples of politicians, voters um, that think, okay, well, this is a problem, sure, but it's not really that big a problem for me. So, so I'm I'm going to be more concerned on things that influence my everyday life. And surely, there will probably also be. Players out there on the market, companies, corporations, thinking, well, uh, I'm not put here to save the world. I'm I'm put on the earth to make some money for my investors. And to them, we can now say, well, this is actually also in your self-interest, even if you're situated in, in Denmark or the US or wherever, um, as a company or as a citizen, if you live there, you will also be affected. So if not for altruistic reasons, then then also for selfish reasons. We need to do something something about that. Would that be a, a fair conclusion, do you think? Absolutely. You know, and, and this is the, the thing. I don't think anyone is calling on altruism necessarily. What we are calling on people to do is to use their common sense. Um, and in a world, for example, where you have heat domes across the west coast of of um North America, you have massive floods in Germany, you have devastating wildfires at a continental scale in, in Australia. Just self-preservation should be motivation enough. It is clear that even the more developed parts of, of the world are deeply challenged. And under those sets of circumstances, you cannot have sustainable development. There can be no prospect of health and well-being under those sets of circumstances. And certainly in a deeply unequal world, Um, there simply can be no no prospect. So while the developed world needs to take stock of the fact that its reality is changing, it also needs to realize that unless it assists in changing the reality of the developing world, mm. its options for the future are also going to be narrowly constricted. And so really we're calling for a new social compact, a, a new empathy between ourselves um, in order to, to move forward. And, and there are some who have and some who do not have. And, and we need to look at finding new partnerships that allow us to uh, create a, a more equal society, not only within countries, but between countries. And, and that really is going to be um, the only way for everyone to move forward successfully and for everyone to, to have the chance of a future um, which is healthy and, and safe and sustainable. I think that's an extremely important point and and maybe it's time that we start looking at at climate policy as being integrated with almost all other uh, types of politics. I mean it's it's about security. It it, it has to do with uh, uh, equality in economics. Uh, so also uh, the how do we distribute The, the goods that we have on this planet it's about health um, it's it's probably it's about migration it's difficult actually to point to a a a political sphere where the effects of climate change will not be important as well as it's fair to say that it's important to know that if we are to solve this problem it's not just a question about 
simply uh, having a different energy policy, even though that's important, obviously. We, we need to look at this in a holistic way. Would you agree with that? No, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, in my day job, I'm a local government uh, practitioner. So I'm, I'm very interested in, in the, the action part of, of these discussions. And, and to me, um, you know, I, I think climate change ceased many decades ago to be an environmental issue. It's often been characterized that it's simply a development issue now. And, and particularly it's a sustainable development issue. Um, you know, if we're to have the, the prospects of providing everyone with access to, to basic services, um, health care, um, the prospect of, of a decent and, and dignified uh, job, then we have to think about climate change as, as a development uh, issue because what climate change does is it makes worse all of the existing problems we, we have. Um, and exacerbates the development inequality. So to me, climate change is really a development issue. It's a sustainable development issue. And, and we spent a lot of time um, in terms of preparing our report, looking at the multiple benefits of bold climate action, and in our case, adaptation, and the spin-offs that has for the sustainable development goals, because it's pointless tackling uh, climate change in the absence of dealing with poverty, in the absence of dealing with health, um, in the absence of thinking about the kind of, of partnerships we need to, to develop at a variety of, of levels. And so in many ways, climate change and climate change responses need to be central to the conceptualization of a new development path in, in the 21st century, but it is ultimately about development. And that then maybe leads me to one of the few positive uh, conclusions that, that we might be able to agree on, which is that even though the, the prospects are, are quite bleak and, and the situation is very serious, there are also reasons for optimism. I mean, the fact that all of these things are interconnected also poses a great opportunity. It means that when we, for instance, uh, reform or transform our energy systems, well, if we move away from fossils and, and use more renewables and become more energy efficient, that will also very often give countries, uh, communities, even local communities, even individuals, um, a, a positive uh, economic output because it's it's cheaper and and uh, and better. Also, um, air pollution, uh, an, an environmental problem that's connected to the to the use of fossils will diminish and thereby save lives. So that's just just, just a, a, a few very obvious examples, but but I guess there are many that if you do this the right way, then then actually your your societies as a whole will will benefit. Absolutely. And I, mean, I think you're 110% uh, correct with that. And in fact, as part of that storyline with, within our assessment report, we, we call out five systems where the sorts of transitions you're talking about are absolutely essential, not only to addressing climate change, but obviously to meet the, the bigger aspirations of, of sustainable sustainability in a more equitable world. You've called out one of them, the, the energy system. And of course, there's real bang for the buck um, in terms of turning the energy system around because of the multiple benefits uh, you, you've indicated. But there's real opportunity too in terms of the industrial system to affect a move towards a, a greener economy, which not only benefits um, the uh, climate challenge we face, but obviously creates uh, better prospects for, 
for jobs that are, are dignified and, and healthier. We, we also call out urban areas particularly as an important transition because the bulk of us live in cities now that will continue uh, well into to the century. We're expecting two-thirds of us to be living in, in cities uh, by the middle of the century. So cities also provide us with this opportunity through different approaches to, to planning and, and design and infrastructural build to create healthier environments for people. You know, if we bring nature back into the city and have green areas running through our cities, that helps us deal with flood risk and reduce uh, the impact on infrastructure, but also improves mental health and, and well-being of, of our city's residents. So cities and the, the way we plan them um, offer up an enormous opportunity, and that's particularly the case in, in uh, the global south because of the big infrastructural bill that's still to come in our urban areas, and in the north because you now need to be renewing old infrastructure. So there's this um, enormous global scale, but admittedly time-limited opportunity to use cities as a way to turn things around. Obviously, the way we structure society is another important transition. So there are issues, for example, of gender become important, the consideration of ethnic groups and indigenous communities and, and people living in informal settlements who sit on the outskirts of decision-making need to be brought in. And, and that benefits us because by bringing more people in, we get more people who are capable of, of responding to, to the challenge and that, that benefits everyone. And then obviously the way we treat our, our ecosystems becomes really critical to supporting the entire development uh, chain. And, and then we argue that that uh, goal of planetary health and ecosystem health is, is vital in underpinning human health and, and well-being. So if we look at those opportunities for action, you know, both at the ecosystem level, the urban level, the energy level, the industrial level, the societal level, that there, there are real intervention points that we can be Begin working on now um, in order to begin to, to turn the tide and, and keep that window of, of opportunity open so that we can ultimately get through it. Very good points. I, I, I want to ask you also uh, about the, the dilemma that's connected to uh, economic growth because on, on one hand, uh, some people might argue that, well, the way we use the resources on this planet is, is obviously unsustainable. Um, that is partly due to the fact that we use too many resources. So therefore, obviously, a a solution that's obvious is let's let's then let's then uh, limit growth. Let's uh, let's cut down on the resources that we use. Let's recycle more and all of those things. Uh, another way of looking at it would be well, since we live in a planet where we still have uh, hundreds of millions of people living in poverty. Um, we owe them economic growth for them at least. I mean, they need to to have a better standard of living and thereby consume more. We also know that we will be 10 billion people on this planet in 2050, probably. Definitely many more than we are now. So talking about limiting growth is really not that realistic. We will have a, a growth in consumption on, on, on the planet. So therefore, the solution is probably to make sure that that growth and that consumption is more sustainable in the way than the way it is today. What what would you say to to that dilemma? I mean, I, I could answer that uh, from the perspective of, of being a local government official, but also an IPCC co-chair. But let me stick to to the report. 
I, I think what our report indicates is that this is all about achieving a better balance in, in society and, and with the planet at, at large. And certainly uh, one of the major hurdles and barriers we uh, identify to achieving not only an ambitious climate uh, response across adaptation and mitigation, but also achieving the, the broader sustainable development goals, which touch on these uh, broader issues of, of service provision, economic growth and decent work, industry, um, and so on, is this issue of inequity in, in the world. Um, and so I think it's, it's quite difficult to cast as a narrative of, you know, someone has to give up something so someone else can have it. I think what it is is about a better balance um, across all elements of, of society, uh, a more equitable use of, of the available resources. And as you correctly say, that means the people who currently don't have access to, to the basic services currently need to be able to, to access those and access them in, in an equitable way. And that really puts a uh, you know, challenge out there. How do we begin to provide services in, in a way that meets these basic needs and provides human wealth and well-being. And that's why innovation, uh, technology, and, and thinking about infrastructure is so important because we've got to think about new ways of doing things that allow improved access and allow those who have existing access to do things in, in a more sustainable way. And I think that's the shakeup that our report is, is requiring. It's basically saying that, that business as usual is simply not going to cut it. Everyone, those who have and have not, need to approach um, the, the future in, in a different way, not only more equitably, but we need to make access to, to the basics of, of life easier, but all more sustainable. And, and there many of our, our processes and systems will, will need overhauls. We've spoken about the energy system, but certainly we need to think about our industrial system as well. We need to think about the provision of services in, in a new way. And so it's, it's not just a simple story of, of having and not having and redistributing, but really giving a, the entire system a, a major overhaul and, and looking for moments of innovation and, and sustainability within mm. that. So what, what, what does the report teach us about the most important obstacles for us to actually then do the right thing, so to speak? In terms of, of the obstacles, well, I think probably sort of turning that, that around, what we look for, because we do want to give people a, a sense of agency in what is obviously a, a very challenged world, we, we look at those enabling conditions. So if we've got this basket of challenges, we've got an unequal world, it's dealing with, with massive pressures from, from climate change, massive de development challenges, how, how do we move forward? And certainly key to that, and, and I hear that in every discussion I'm currently having, is, is governance. Um, you know, we, we need governance that allows more people access to the discussion, allows more people to sit around the table to help take decisions and decide where resources go. That needs to be supported by policy frameworks that help incentivize the, the kind of sustainability solutions I've been speaking about in, in these different sectors. So we need to, to create access to decision-making. We need to create those policy frameworks. Those need to be across all scales, so from international down to, to local, but it's pointless having a policy framework if you don't have adequate uh, financing to, to drive this more ambitious adaptation, mitigation, and, and sustainable development. And as someone who works in, in local government, I know very often we get handed policies, but no equivalent resources to, to deliver on them. So I think tying up that policy framework with, with finance is important. 
We also need to build new institutional capacity because we are talking about new ways of, of doing things. And so we need to make sure that, you know, that our institutions are up to, to this new challenge. Um, and I think very often we can uh, improve institutional capacity by drawing more strongly on what we know from, from science, from technology, using innovation more. So I think that that's an important arena. And that speaks to, to new partnerships that need to be put in place. But importantly, we also tell a story about a world that's changing so rapidly that, you know, good adaptation today may not be good adaptation tomorrow or indeed five years from now. And so really thinking about how we put in place uh, monitoring and evaluation to ensure that the outputs of all these changes um, are delivering what we need. Because our report is very clear that there's a real prospect if we don't think clearly about our actions that we can generate maladaptation. So actions that don't deliver the adaptive capacity we need and in fact create further problems. Um, and we also know that there are limits to adaptation. So we need to be watching the outcomes of, of our adaptation actions to ensure they're delivering uh, what is required. And because this is a global scale challenge, we need everyone involved and so international cooperation. So you can see again, there, there are many moving pieces in the, the, the kind of, of response that we have to create across many scales, touching many uh, aspects of, of our lives that we need to pull together. Unfortunately, there is no silver bullet. I mean, I know as a policymaker, I would love someone to come to me and say, look, if you do this one thing or these five things, everything's solved. The answer is not that, unfortunately. We have to be active across all scales, consistently monitoring what, what we do and, and informing the revision of our, our policies using data and, and evidence. So it's an ongoing commitment to, to a better world. It, it really is. And I, I also think that that's one of the reasons why the work that, that you do is so important because when, when I, for instance, read your report, and, and by the way, I should just tell people that there is a summary for policymakers. When I read that, on one hand, it's, it's clear that this is complex. It's also clear that we have many obstacles that we need to, to surpass before we can have success. But on the other hand, it's not that we don't know what to do. I mean, we we need to start adapting already now. I mean, there, had, there has been a discussion uh, on whether or not to focus on adaptation or mitigation. And, and some people, even very well-meaning people, have said, well, we should focus on mitigation because uh, the other strategy is, is a losing strategy. We shouldn't, we shouldn't accept that climate change will hit us and, and therefore we shouldn't focus on adaptation. But But now I think most people would agree that we need to do both because climate change is already here and there's no way around adapting. But of course, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be full speed also on, on mitigation. Um, and if we all agree on, on, on this point, then, then really that is a very good point of departure for, for our further uh, endeavors. And I can't agree more. In many ways, you have summarized Uh, where we landed uh, in terms of, of our conclusions about the way forward. And, and we use the concept of climate resilient development, um, which simply breaks down, as you say, to the fact that we no longer have an option. Our report is very clear. You know, we've created a dangerous world here and now through the changes that we're already experiencing. Climate change is no longer a future prospect. It's here and now. We have to adapt to those changes. But importantly, we must prevent as many future changes as possible. That means ambitious mitigation. So adaptation and mitigation are now just um, opposite sides of, of the same coin. 
We, but what we've done is say that dealing with climate change by itself is insufficient. That all of those actions, bold adaptation, bold uh, mitigation, have to be taken within the context of considering the need for sustainable development. So consideration for justice, for equity. And I think that's the important message is we have to be able to integrate all of these, these things together. We have to be able to pull them together. You can only uh, fulfill such an ambitious mandate because it is an ambitious mandate. Uh, um, if everyone is is playing their part, which calls out that whole of society response. So, you know, the, the, the chance or choice that we thought we may have had two decades ago about whether it's mitigation or adaptation, we no longer have that, that choice. We have to do both. We have to do it in a sustainable and equitable way. And perhaps just a call out for those who may even be um, worried about having to read our summary for policymakers. Uh, we do have headline statements. We do have regional fact sheets. We've got uh, some sectoral fact sheets coming out. So we are trying uh, to ensure that this important piece of work, and it has to be thorough and long because that's what the governments uh, give us the mandate for. We're, we're told to go away and do a very comprehensive assessment, but we also acknowledge at the end of the day, we need to make this material available. So I would ask everyone to, to look at the IPCC website, look for our report, You'll see where the fact sheets are in the headline statements. And that really puts out the, the, the key messages for, for those who are interested. With that uh, call, Deborah, I will uh, thank you so much for, for joining me here in the podcast. And, and thank you again for your, for your work. Uh, the IPCC is, is, is really an important uh, voice uh, and it makes it possible for, for decision makers like, like myself, but, but also for basically all citizens uh, on, on this planet to, to make informed choices and to prepare for, for the future and, and hopefully also to, to, to change the path that we're on right now. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for this opportunity, not only to, to talk about the report, but to talk to an audience that I would not have been able to reach in, in any other way. Um, and very happy, um, you know, if anyone is, is further interested to, to answer any questions. And, and we can easily be contacted via the IPCC website. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thanks so much. Bye. Go well. Have a good day. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.